0: And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum?
1: Thanks. Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony.
0: And I'm Maggie.
1: And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read, but you can't forget? We've got that, too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads.
0: Hello, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie, welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. And this this week we are reading the second half of Red Clocks by Lenny Zumas from page like 188 to the end. Maggie, do you want to help us summarize the second half of the book? I think that the big thing that's really, the the plot really hones in in the second half of the book to a couple of things. The first is Maddie dealing with her pregnancy. Ro gets roped into that situation, which she has very conflicting feelings about. And then the other sort of main moving plot point is Jin, the mender, is... Preparing to go to trial for the fact that she was arrested for apparently attempting to give an illegal abortion that went wrong, medical malpractice, blah, blah, blah. And Susan unexpectedly gets kind of wrapped up in that story. And then all of these things kind of come together as everyone in town is like very much watching to see what's going to happen to Jin and what's going to come of this trial. So those are really like the two the two big events that I would say the second half of the book revolves around. The first half, the four women are very much... They're connected, but they're, they have more individualized stories, I would say. And in the second half, we're really dealing with just a few plot points that involve all of them. Their stories get a lot closer together.
2: Yeah, because even though... These women, like Susan in particular, she has probably the least relationship with Jen. Even though these women don't really have a relationship with Jen, for the most part, they are all invested in the outcome of this trial. And they all feel some sort of solidarity, despite their varying beliefs about Jen.
0: Yeah, for sure. They pretty much all, not even pretty much, all of them believe that Jen should not be... Put in prison for this, essentially. So they're all very invested with what's going to happen. And then I would say, with their individual stories, we see Susan's marriage, like the culmination of Susan's marriage falling apart, and sort of her willingness or unwillingness to, in her words, essentially blow up her own life Um, and what happens with that. We see Maddie struggle to get an abortion. We see Roe helping Maddie get an abortion, but having extraordinarily conflicted feelings because her chances of having a child um, are now nearly impossible by the end of the story. And so there's part of her that really conflictingly wants to just be like, Maddie, I'll take the baby.
2: Yeah. And,
0: but she never
2: does ask.
0: No, she never does ask. But that's a huge part of her like internal turmoil with this. And then the mender, Jin, is you know preparing to go to trial but a lot of that means like reflecting on her relationship with Lola and on her relationships with other people so even though she has kind of the more high octane storyline in this place it's still a very introspective part of the story I would say as she's really kind of I think realizing not necessarily for the first time but like doing a really deep dive into the way in which she doesn't fit into the prescriptions that the way in which that she does not fit into the prescriptions that society has made for not even necessarily just women, but for like humans in general and how you're supposed to live and how you're supposed to behave and how like gin just doesn't, she just doesn't function like that. And she shouldn't yeah. have to.
2: That's true too. And she also is kind of invested um, in Maddie's storyline, even though she doesn't really get to see her. She does have a few moments in which she thinks about like, what could happen to Maddie. And I think that is important because it's a part of her resolution. Yeah. Yeah, this was a wild ride. So what were your first impressions of this or your impressions rereading it? That
0: the second half of the story moves a lot faster than the first half of the story, which isn't to disparage the first half of the story. I think together they really make a well-crafted book. But this is definitely one of those books that's very much divided into two halves, even though it's not like in the text where like the first half of the story is this very like quiet character driven story about these four women in this really just like fucked up society. And the second half is a much, it's still character driven of course, but it is a lot more like fast paced plot based, you know, there's some twists and turns happening with the plot. You don't really know where it's going to go. And for me, all of that put together made the book very like, I didn't, I couldn't put it down. I think I ended up reading it in two sittings because once I got past the first 50 pages and I was like reinvested in the characters, I was like, well, now I just have to know what happens. <laughs> like, um, and I will say also, I found the ending this time around to be more satisfactory than the first, not because anything has changed. It's in some ways, in some ways, it's a very open ending for some of the characters, um, not for everyone, but for some of them. And I think the first time around, I wanted a neater story. And this time around, I really appreciated that open ending more. What about you? What were your impressions?
2: I thought like, because Maggie had, as we talked in the first episode, really originally sold this to me as a dystopian novel. I thought we got to see that a little bit more in the second half. And I came up with the genre that I think this fits. I think it's primarily a uh, drama. But I also think it's a work of speculative fiction. And that, you know, we just have like, It's a very small part of the future, but we get to see the very real consequences and how this future world does differ from our own and how it does impact these women's lives in very real ways in a way that feels drastic, almost. And we really get to see that with the trial, too, because the trial is a witch trial, which I think is important and probably symbolic. And we'll get into that later. But yeah, I really enjoyed the second half. I enjoyed the ending and its open-endedness because I thought, I thought that was thematic too with what the story had to say. The first part of this half starts with the wife. So why don't we start with the wife? Because I have written here in my notes, Maggie, that Susan is a fucking badass and she saved the day and you owe her an apology. I mean, I feel like I don't owe her an apology because
0: <laughs> all of those opinions were true of Susan in the first half.
2: (laughs) You told me that there was nothing more to her storyline. And there is. Of course there is. Why would I I just tell you what happens? Well, you said that she just is always the wife. That she doesn't have anything outside of being the wife. And she starts to reclaim her identity in this half. As not just the wife, but as the person that she used to be. Yeah, for sure. I think
0: that for me, I... Part of that frustration comes from the fact that we really only get to see the beginning of that story for the wife. She ends up saving the day because she is the person who comes up with the legal argument that... Uh, I guess we got to talk about some characters first. <laughs> so in in this section, Susan gets a call from Edward, who is somebody that she used to go to law school with, because he's essentially been brought in by the state to represent Jin in trial. So... That's how Susan is sort of brought into the trial is that she's thinking about all of this stuff from law school and uh, even more and the fact that, you know, she really regrets not taking that path in X, Y, and Z. And ultimately, through all of this, she is the one who supplies Edward with sort of the the linchpin of his case, because she is able to put pieces of evidence together together that show that Lola was being coerced into saying all of the things that she was by her abusive husband and through all of that sort of part almost like sleuthing detectiveness part just like being a really good law student who still remembered all of that later she saves the day and it's great and it's a really empowering moment for her and it's really one of the key moments where she's like Where she's almost like, yeah, I should blow up my life a little bit because, like, this is the this is the feeling that I want. Almost, I think I just wish that we saw more of that transformation for her instead of spending eighty percent of the book with her being so deeply unhappy, and then like twenty percent in this moment of realization. I think that for me, I understand why her story is structured the way it is, but it. I think it would have been more empowering if we maybe saw more of like a 60-40 situation or like a 50-50 where we get to see a little bit more of the consequences of the fact that she's leaving diddier and like get to see more of her rebuilding her life and rebuilding her identity. Cause we really only get to see this, like the spark and the, and the explosion. We don't get to see the aftermath.
2: Yeah. I mean, throughout this, she's still, she's still thinking about Brian. She still thinks about, yeah, you're right. The second half of the book, the most the the majority of the wife's storyline is still trying to figure out like how to blow up her marriage and blow up her life. But I don't I kind of disagree with something that you said before about like law school being the life that she did want. I think that she considers it, but whenever she thinks about that, she always comes back to her children. It is emphatically stated that she wants her children. She just wants space from them and time to breathe. And she knows that like she wouldn't have them without this. So I don't think she necessarily regrets. I think she sometimes regrets, but I don't think like on a macro level, she really regrets quitting law school. I think that she regrets letting her life get to this point where she feels trapped.
0: Yeah. When I said that this is the life she wants, I meant it more in the sense that like she is is in a position where she's being valued and praised and seen as a person outside of her identity as a mother not necessarily not necessarily because it was like law related just like that happened to be what it was you know
2: yeah another part of the the wife's storyline a lot of it is just like lists and her being on auto drive here's a section on page 212 She spots husband and children through the window, tumbling in the brown grass behind the garage. He has given them a snack at least even if he didn't clean up. herd crumbs into palm, spray table, wipe down table, rinse cups and bowls, set cups and bowls in dishwasher, throw empty family-sized soft batch cookie box into recycling. If she le- leaves first she breaks her family, not up recycling and take it out to blue bin. Pour compost pail. Rinse water into pot of thickest tree. Spray mist onto green snake arms of Medusa's head. If she sleeps with Brian, it won't be a relationship. Stack books. Push fairy costumes into trunk. Only sex. Ignore black dust on baseboards. Intercourse with a shire horse. Ignore soft yellow hairballs in every corner. Ignore beds of children, but make own. And so on and so on. So like she's contemplating sleeping with Brian still. This is before Brian has rejected her. Sorry that we spoiled that for you in the last episode. Maybe I'll cut it out. Maybe I won't. So like she's still going through this process for the majority of it. But I think it's important that we see that and that we live in that because I think that it is a big decision to leave. And I think it's good that we see that she tried multiple avenues before deciding, and I really like the wife's ending. The wife's ending is her; it's her telling Didier finally that she wants a divorce, and Didier like doesn't believe her at first, and he's just kind of a continually an asshole. It's weird because, like, with with Didier, he
0: you really see like it's it's very illustrated that he just never ever actually listened because he is he's is genuinely that surprised when she says that she's gonna leave him I have the page if you if you want me to do some reading
2: yeah that's good I was thinking like page 327 is where because like she tells him and then on to page 328 uh okay so it
0: starts I'll start but when she first says it so it starts with I think, say it, because I have none. We can stop on the way home. I think we should take a break, huh? From each other. He narrows his eyes. Like a separation, she adds. Why? Because it's not no breath in her lungs. Good anymore. And then, too frightened to look at his face, she concentrates on the blue leather toes of her clogs. Susan, I'm looking for the joke with a microscope. She She shakes her head. We have stuff that could improve, okay, but everyone does. We can work on it. You didn't want to work on it, she says. "'You mean the therapy? But that's... it's better this way, anyway.' "'Why?' he says softly. "'I'm sorry,' says the wife. "'And then a little bit further down. "'I'm going to my parents tomorrow. She says you can stay in the house for now.' "'Oh, really? I can stay? And that bu- broke-down bourgeoisie firetrap?' "'But he will. That's the thing. "'He will judge and dismiss. He will scorn and rage. "'Yet out of, of sheer laziness, he will stay. "'Sucking on his cigarette. We don't have to decide now. "'Didier. Let's talk about it tomorrow, yeah?' On that last word, his voice quavers. Nothing will be different tomorrow. She has no plan. For telling the kids for making a custody schedule for finding a job. Her mother said on the phone this morning, you've at least opened your own bank account, I hope, and the wife had to lie. The only idea in her sore, salt, stalled brain had been tell him. He stamps out the cigarette on the gravel path. You won't know what I won't miss? Me. Your shitty cooking. And I won't miss having three children, says the wife. Fuck you, Susan. The wife kneels on the path rent a car open a bank account bring yourself to care she reaches for the black earth her body yearns inexplicably to taste it brings a handful to her lips the minerals sizzle on her tongue rich with the gists of flour and bone hell are you doing says didier bright minerals powdered feathers ancient ancient shells jesus stop that she keeps tasting the soil is bark and needle and flecks of brain little animal burnt and dead goodbye shipwrecks goodbye house goodbye wife
2: ending I know I know that it's a played out narrative that she is just the wife but I like that we get to see her trapped and I think that we get to see that she is different things she just feels like she can't be untrapped and I thought that the ending of her eating the earth was really important because it's so non-conventional and because like part of what she's doing is breaking the conventions it almost kind of feels a little bit like when she's describing the earth a little bit like something Jin would do and i also thought it was important because her body is such a big part of her narrative and something she seems to have a love-hate relationship with like in earlier in the novel she talks about her labia and it clapping and like how That's wonderful it is yeah yeah how wonderful it is to, talk, to walk naked and she does things like places her um i think it's a passive aggressive thing but she places her pubic hair on the toilet seat and it seems like this weird sort of acceptance for who she is even though in some ways she feels like her body has been destroyed by children and like she her body isn't appreciated anymore and even in this section Maggie kind of skipped over it, but there's something where Didier says something. Let's see.
0: Oh, about how she's going to get fat.
2: Yeah. If you keep squinting like that, says the wife, your eyes might get stuck. And if you keep eating like that, your ass might get stuck in every door. Like, he's just such an asshole to her. And, like, I think he's only staying because he is lazy. She says it herself. Like, he'll stay in that house just because he's lazy. He doesn't want to change. He doesn't want to know what the unknown is. But he resents her. Yeah, because she's
0: blowing up his like easy life. I think for me, the most satisfying part of the wife's story is the fact that Brian didn't sleep with her. Um, He really did just want to be friends. Like she, I don't want to say she misread that situation because I don't think, I think it was really just like her desperation but for a lot of this half of the novel, her mantra is essentially on page 193. It like really starts coming in and it says, uh, she is too chicken shit to leave her marriage. She wants Didier to leave it first. And like that's really the internal struggle that she's having this time. The first half of the novel, it's really, should I leave my husband? And the second half of the novel is really this marriage needs to end and I don't know how to do it. And so I think for me, the fact that she can't make any kind of out for herself, make any kind of, well, I slept with him. Like she isn't able to force Didier to leave. She has to own those feelings for herself and make that decision for herself because it's enough that she wants out. Like it's, an, and that's it. That's all it has to be. And I think for me, that ended up being one of the most empowering parts of the wife's story to see. I just wish that we got to see, A little bit more of her like rebuilding and reclaiming an identity because as much as there's power in blowing up an identity that you feel like trapped in and forced into I think there's also just as much power in having to figure out who you are outside of those boundaries and we don't we don't we just don't get the opportunity to see that with the wife's story. Like that is the last time the wife is like has a point of view, which is a fitting ending, but I think it would have been sweet to even just see like one more chapter with her where she's like dealing with some of it, you know?
2: Yeah. I think yeah, I get what you're saying. I agree. She talks about like how it's going to be hard, but we just yeah, we don't get that part. But I think that fits the novel because each of these women are prescribed to their roles and we really don't get to see their endings for any of them we get to see just the start the start of a new life and the start of options like that's the big ending everyone now has more options that's our happy ending
0: I think for most people I think that in some ways for Roe it's the opposite
2: I get what you're saying but I think that like in her ending she still has a variety of options like she doesn't she doesn't get to have the baby but she still gets to find other ways to fulfill her life even without that that could be meaningful like she's she too is trapped in this idea that she needs to be a mother and she doesn't even know why she wants it and then she gets to find other ways in which she can be fulfilled like her not getting that is almost a sort of freedom because then she gets other opportunities to help people not because like not that being a mother isn't like a choice of freedom but like she's so trapped in that mindset and she's fighting for it so hard that like now that she can relinquish that idea she gets different options and like ways to figure out how to fulfill that need See, I would
0: agree with that. I think the sticking point I have is that the next place in the place she ends up is the fact that she can still be a foster mom. And so like, yeah. I feel like in some ways, which being a foster parent is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And the people who do it are absolutely just like heroes in this world. But I think for Roe, it feels to me like a dangerous sticking point where she's just going to get like, She's still going to be admired in this system, like trying to become a foster mom, you know, like, I think almost for her, it would be better if that wasn't an option on the table anymore, because I feel like she's gonna have to kind of, I think she's just going to keep fighting so that she can have whatever she can. And on the one hand, that's a good thing, right? Like, even though she doesn't really understand the reason she knows that she wants to be a mom, and I commend her for like, being the kind of person who's probably gonna fight tooth and nail to fit to like be able to do that role in whatever way she can legally. But on the other hand, when it comes to like a clean break and really being able to look at all of those options, I feel like it would have been better for her character if that wasn't still on the table. So like, I see what you're saying. And I agree. I just think that like, there's still a sticking point there that could hinder her from that. But it's also hard to say because, like, that's where the story ends, right? Like, she doesn't have a baby. She's going to move forward being a foster mom. And, like, we don't know if she's going to get as, like, deep into the process, as as bogged down by the process of that as she does by the process of trying to adopt and then trying to have her own biological child, you know?
2: Yeah. I want to talk more about that. But I want to talk about that when we fully transition to Ro. Because I think... To reframe what I was saying before, I think you're right. And I think, I guess, I guess the, sister, the idea that she's breaking out of then would be the idea that like the baby that Maddie has is going to be hers yes. or that she's going to get a baby now. That is an idea that she we really see her free herself from and like cut off for herself. But while we're still talking about Susan to backtrack a little bit, because I think this kind of relates and could transition nicely into Ro's story, we find out throughout this second half that Susan and Ro actually used to be really close. And then we we kind of saw earlier that like I think we see first that Susan said something to Ro about like women not having children, like not being real grown-ups. And then and this second half, we get to see that Ro said something to Susan about like t- choosing to take uh, a husband's last name, which maybe you can talk a little bit about Maggie, because I know that this is something like we've talked about in the podcast before. Like, I don't believe if I ever get married, I'm going to take my husband's last name. And Maggie did choose to do that and like wanted to do that. But that was like, that was a way that Ro used her career and her singledom to dismiss Susan. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really important thing.
0: Yeah, I don't know that I can talk about the last name thing quite as much as, like, because the thing is, is that I didn't legally change my last name. Um, At all professional yeah. circumstances, I still use my maiden name. I just like the, like, I've just been sold on, like, the traditional family unit bullshit and, like, in my personal life, I go by my husband's last name. So like, I have that separation for myself in the sense that like, legally, I'm still, I still have my maiden name. It's just that like, in my personal life and on my Facebook and stuff, I use my husband's last name. And like, the thing is, is that it was just something I wanted. And it was like, not for great reasons. It was literally just because like, I, like, that's how I grew up. I grew up in a house where we all had the same last name and stuff. And like, I liked that little, like, just dumb, patriarchal, like, family unit thing. Like, that's it. But I feel like that for me, it's important to be able to admit that and say I recognize the fact that, like, this tradition doesn't come from great places, but, like, I don't necessarily care and I want to do it anyways because I want to do it and, like, was able to, for myself in that way, carve out the places where it felt appropriate to use that name and, like, places where it's appropriate to use my name the name I've had my whole life if that makes sense but I do think that that is I think that it's a tension in the story because when people hear that I take my husband's last name a lot of people do get really like well why did you do that like you just like you just did what the patriarchy wanted like there's no reason to do that and it's just like I think it's just kind of very infantilizing and to a certain extent to have those conversations because people think that you're too stupid to realize that like you bought into it you know and it's like I do realize that I bought into it but I did it and like for some and like in some cases it's because of pressure like it was assumed by my family um not in a negative way but like that's what everyone in my family does is that like you take your partner's last name and stuff and it's like to a certain extent for me it's like is this the hill that I want to die on right now <laughs> like and I thought about hyphenating but It would have been, it just, it would have been a real mouthful to deal with, uh, both of our last names together, because it would be a hyphen plus, like, two very non-traditional spellings with a space in the middle and, like, so all of that is true, but, like, I really get why that comment rubbed Susan the right, the wrong way, because it sometimes rubs me the wrong way, because it just, like, assumes that, like, you're anti-feminist, that you're not thinking about, like, feminist things and feminist topics, and also disallows the like argument that you're occasionally allowed to do something just because you fucking want to do it. And like, yeah. it. like you're just allowed to do stuff because you want to do it and nothing and not everything has to be like this really deeply thought out, meaningful, like this decision is so important to me sort of deal, you know, like it, it's just not everything has to be like that. And I think that for, some women taking their husband's last name like is one of those decisions but for a lot of people it isn't so like having somebody question your choices for reasons that imply it like you're too stupid to think about feminism and disregards the fact that like you're really just allowed to do whatever you want just because you want to do it like is frustrating but having said that also susan's comment to that row overheard about the fact that you're not a grown-up until you have kids is like also horseshit and i also understand why roe was upset by that you know but i think it's interesting because it really showcased the way that like little things and small attitudes can really like degrade and break apart friendships
2: yeah i agree with that i agree with everything that you just said and i think like the important thing like to go to get into your personal life like as your friend and as somebody who's probably made some of those comments because i'm an asshole just so everyone on air knows (laughs) (laughs) But, like, as your friend, like, the important thing is that, like, it's your choice. And with Susan, because we're still talking about her, like, that is her choice. And when Ro said that, it does, it implies, like, a dismissal of her entire lifestyle. And it is infantil- It's infantilizing her. And that's the same thing that Susan does to Ro. Yeah. But I also think that, like, these weren't necessarily conscious things. Like, my mother, my mother we've had her on the podcast had me super young right so most of her friends were single but she said things to me like she likes better when artists become mothers because she thinks that like it requires a sort of like self-sacrifice that she can like relate to and she feels like maybe they're more grown up because for her that was kind of a thing right like she was A grown up at 19, like she had to be because she was caring for another person while all of her friends were able to like go do drugs and party. So I can see where each of these women are coming from. But the way that their lifestyles are used by each other to like pit each other against each other, by each other and society. Seems really, really wrong because you can want both. And that's the whole point. The whole point is that, like, we should be able to do whatever we want and we can change our minds. Because for Ro, she wanted to be a lot. She didn't think she wanted to be a mother necessarily. Like, she wasn't worrying about it necessarily when she was younger. And now she decides she does want to be a mother. And with Susan, like, she had that life. She had the life you were supposed to have. And she's deciding that she doesn't want it. And, like, that is okay.
0: I think also something that's worth talking about here is the fact that with Susan and Ro's stories, um, they're both very, the grass is greener on the other side. They both have very idealized thoughts of how the other person's life goes. I think sometimes for Ro worse, because she doesn't really realize that there's so many problems in Didier and Susan's marriage especially because at this point in the novel like she is closer to didier and he's clearly like he doesn't get it as and it's his fault it's willful ignorance but like he does genuinely not get how unhappy susan is because he's stupid and doesn't listen um so like i think that roe really just like builds up this lifestyle that susan lives even down to the fact that like susan came from money and like lives rent-free in this big bougie house and stuff and like when you get to susan's place you see that like the fact that they're able to live rent-free is really one of the only reasons that they're able to like pay all of their bills and occasionally go out to dinner and stuff and like things would be really 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 tight for them if they didn't have that and like it is one of those it is one of the few places where susan does kind of Think about and recognize her privilege because she understands how much more difficult her life would be and how difficult others' lives are with that like extra financial pressure. But they're just like very, very envious of each other. And because you see how they're both so unhappy, there is a part of you that's like, well, it does feel a little bit like even if you got what you want, you still wouldn't be happy.
2: You yeah. Know? Yeah. Because That's not I mean, for each of them, like throughout most of this story, Susan's goal is to like sleep with Brian because then she'll just get an out for her marriage. But we see that like that wouldn't the more empowering thing for her was to like just own up to her wanting to leave. And I think for Roe, too, we see that like she wants a child and she doesn't ever get that. But we also see that there are things that are almost just as important to her that she finds and thinks that maybe she can like help and change and that she has more power than she thought she did before.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Before we move on to row, because I know that that's kind of what we're gearing up to do I do want to say that there's this one passage that the wife has in here I'm trying to find it really fast that really spoke to me because we see we see a lot of the wife like struggling with the fact that I, we talked about this a little bit in the first episode, that she's not always the best mother or she doesn't feel like she's the best mother. And she feels like she has very little patience for her children sometimes, especially her oldest Bex, because she is so much like diddier like her father and she gets frustrated and she, she and she snaps at them. And I mean, she does things that all normal parents that all parents do, right? Like but we see this one really really big parenting win that she has with Bex in this half and I just want to read it and acknowledge it for a second because like it's a about a body positivity moment, but like B I think really boils down and hits home the fact that like the Susan loves her children and she doesn't want to be without them. She's just at this point where if she doesn't make a lifestyle change she's going to be a bad parent. Like, and she's going to feel like a bad parent because they're just draining her of everything she's got. Like, she, she doesn't have a space for herself to recharge. So I just wanted to read the passage really fast. It's pretty short. It's between fa- uh, pages 276 and 277. She is in the middle of thinking about all of this stuff with Brian and like the fact that she needs to tell Didier, that she's going to like divorce him essentially, which is funny enough. Also, in right after the conversation where Roe and Susan are arguing about the last name thing, oh. uh, I didn't. Re- <laughs> I didn't realize that. I just looked up on the page, so it says. On the kitchen calendar in Saturday Square, she writes a T. Tell him. She can't cheat her way out. She can't wait her way out. Head in the sand. She has to say it herself. Mom, please? Jesus, Bex. It must be in your room. Have you checked under the bed? Not about that, says the girl. Then what? The wife stands holding the ballpoint pen with which she has just written herself a reminder to inform her husband she is leaving him. She wants to ram the pen into her own neck. Am I fat? No! Voice wobbly. I weigh eight pounds more than shell. Oh, sweet Pete! She kneels down on the kitchen floor, gathering becks into her lap. You're exactly the right size for you. Who cares how much shell weighs? You're beautiful and perfect just the way you are. The white fails as a parent on so many fronts. You're my perfect, darling, gorgeous girl. But she will do this one thing right. I don't know that I have, like, a ton else to say about that, but, like... It was really nice in the middle of her like being like feeling so entrenched in feelings as a bad parent to like see this win. And especially with her more difficult child for her to raise to like have this really nice bonding moment. And I think also really showcases the fact that like a lot about being a parent means that like sometimes crises happen where you just have to push aside all of you and just focus on your kid. And to a certain extent, that's the reason it's so hard, I think, at least part of it. And the wife just needs space where she can stop doing that for a second. Because when she has energy to recharge and focus on herself, she can give Bex so many more of those moments and John too, you know?
2: Yeah, I agree. I think that's beautiful, especially because I think that's the only... Throughout this story, we see the wife snapping at her children and just kind of feeling bad about snapping on her children and Then we see her snap at her children from other characters' lenses and like we just kind of she's painted as the nag a lot, like when the biographer comes over when Roe comes over, Susan is always the nag, like she's nothing but that the person that like just has to hold the reins too tight, so it's nice to see her like get that genuine parenting moment outside of other people's lenses and perspectives and just like have that bond between her and her daughter.
0: Yeah. You're right. It was just, it was just a really beautiful moment. Like it was one of those things that stuck with me a lot about her character.
2: Yeah. I noticed that too. It was beautiful. All right. Should we talk? Should we, We're already forty forty 40 minutes in.
0: <laughs> shall we switch gears and talk about the aspect of Roe? story that we haven't talked about yet because I think that there is a a lot of her story is like this continued tension with Susan uh in this half but the other half of the story for her is the fact that she's approached by Maddie and she is the only adult that Maddie tells that she's in trouble yeah and Ro handles it poorly She (laughs) she handles it well and poorly simultaneously mentally Very bad. Her thoughts go to, like, a really bad place. But when it comes to her actual actions, for the most part, she's supportive of Maddie, if occasionally asks questions that come from, like, a selfish place first. And what ends up happening is that Ro accompanies Maddie to get an abortion. And while all of this is happening and while Ro is waiting to see if the abortion works or whatever, like, all of this stuff, what she's really thinking is, I should just illegally ask Maddie for this baby and, like, take it for myself, which is also complicated because it's really not feasible because it's still illegal. It's illegal for that to happen. And she would have had to forge a lot of paperwork, like the kid's birth certificate and stuff, aside from the fact that, like, Maddie is her student and it's like a really morally wrong to be contemplating. So like that's the part of Roe that we haven't had a chance to discuss yet. What were your thoughts on her uh, conundrums?
2: <laughs> I mean, I think we talked about in the first episode like I part of me as a reader was like, yeah, Maddie, give the baby to Roe, but also like, as a woman and as somebody who's, you know been having sex and so has thought about the consequences of what that can be, like I understand the desire to not want to go through with a pregnancy, because it sounds like a lot. <laughs> it sounds pretty horrific. And I don't think that anyone should go through that if they don't want to or are not ready. It's a, you know, that's a lot of stress to put on yourself and your body. So yeah, I felt really conflicted throughout this story and throughout like the biographer and like I felt so much for the biographer and did want her to get her baby and like kind of did part of me really wanted that like happy ending like I wanted her to have a little boy to go to Alaska with I also thought like outside of the baby Throughout this section of the book, we see Ro really struggling with like writing the story of the biographer. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that when we talk about the biographer because her story changes as well. I mean, not the biographer, the explorer. Yeah. I'm yeah. sure we'll talk about that more when we talk about the explorer because her story changes as well. But the guilt thing also really struck me. And I think it's really I think it's really exemplified, like on page 301, which is actually around where Ro decides that like oh wait I can't actually ask Maddie for this baby like that is wrong so it starts Maddie has just kind of been telling Ro what she's going to do and biographer says that far along says the biographer the procedure could be dangerous The glass splinter is choosing the words. A lot of term houses have no idea what they're doing. They just want to make money. I don't care, says Maddie. I've heard of the biographer's whole self is a splinter. Fatal errors. I don't care. Even if the place is foul and they have other girls' stuff in the buckets, I don't care. I want this to be over. Hands and fist, she starts hitting herself on either side of the head. Bam, 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 bam. Until the biographer pulls her arms gently down. I'm just saying, holding Maddie's wrists, you have other choices. You can wait four and a half short months. Choices? A new edge in her voice. Well, like adoption. Don't want to do that. Maddie jerks out of her grasp, turns away. Why not? Give it to me. Just don't. But why? Give it to me. I've been waiting. You always tell us, the girl's voice flicks up into a whine, that we make our own roads and we don't have to justify or explain them to anyone. I do say that, says the biographer. Maddie glares. However, I'd like to make sure you've thought this through. The girl slumps down against a green filing cabinet, holds her head in both hands, knees up to her chest, rocking a little. I just want it to be out of my body. I want to stop being infiltrated. God, please get this out of my body. Make this stop. Rocking, rocking. She is terrified, realizes the biographer. And I don't want to put someone on this planet, whispers Maddie, who I'll always wonder about my whole life. Like, where is the someone? Are they okay? So she goes on like that. And the biographer has this realization that it is Maddie's body. But I thought that was important because for the most part, the biographer is just kind of like, she doesn't even allow herself to get to this point with Maddie until this page where she's like, have you thought about your options? This is really dangerous. And the questions that she's asking are unfair. And Maddie's just like, she's such a child. Like she's trying so hard to advocate for herself. And it's so hard because like this grown up is there placing that doubt upon her. And the biographer sees all that. And that's when she makes the decision that she's just going to be with Maddie. And she does go with her to this abortion clinic. And when she goes, she calls herself Maddie's mom, which I thought was really significant. What did you think about that, Maggie?
0: Yeah, so I'm really glad that that's the passage that you chose. I think it's also important to add a little bit of plot context, too, because this whole conversation happens after Maddie tries and fails to get over the border into Canada, which is one of the most, I would say, like dystopian feeling aspects of the novel. And and we can get into that when we talk about her sections. But she tries and fails to get into Canada. So Rose like on the edge of her seat waiting to see if this abortion actually happens. It doesn't. And then this sort of, like, climax happens with their stories. And I think that, for me, this was really important because it was, like, the first moment where Ro realized she was being an asshole. Like, she's a teacher. She is in charge of this child. This is a child who... Literally, just wants to fucking go to math camp. Like that's it. <laughs> the, the, that's the whole thing. She wants to go to math camp and like go be a doctor. Like that's like her whole focus. A marine and... biologist. She's a marine. Well, it's it, yeah. it, off... <laughs> it starts that she wants to be a doctor. Then she switches to marine biology after the whole thing with the sperm whales. Uh, um. Okay. So it's like the first time that she actually realizes that she's teaching, that she's dealing with a kid, and that the, this kid is scared like she needs an adult to just like help guide her along and the way that Ro almost guided her would have been abhorrent because of like what you said like she's trying to advocate for herself but really she's going to Ro to like for an adult to be like help me fix this right and like Ro really could have led her in a terrible direction because of what she wanted. Um, and I totally agree with you that, like, the author does a great job of making you feel very sympathetic for Row. I feel like I sound very hard on her right now. Um, I My heart ached for her, this entire book. Like, she is just so sympathetic and conflicted. And she just wants so bad. And I really... I did, but I appreciate the fact that like she's pulled off a precipice that like if she had made that decision to just take what she wants, it would have been like a fundamentally, I think, like identity changing decision, you know, like that's how morally not okay it would have been. And I'm glad that we're taken to the precipice of that. I'm glad that we're taken to see her pushed to like those absolute gray moral limits to see her decide to do the right thing. I also think it's important that she does call herself her mom or Maddie's mom when they go to the clinic from a plot device standpoint, it's definitely partially for like Maddie's safety, right? Because she thinks that she'll be safer if they know that the adult there is like, you know, really vested in her safety, but also like, I think it's one of those moments where you see, like you're talking about at the end with like, where like Rose looking for other places of fulfillment, like, I think that she's always treated her teaching job as being like, the job to get by because she wants to be the biographer, right? Like, that's what she desires. But I think it's one of the places where you see a glimmer of the fact that like, she's really able to make a significant impact in the lives of kids and like, help shape them and like, that moving forward could like, be enough, you know, like be fulfillment enough for her I think it's one of those first places where you see a glimmer of that though again it's hard to say because since the novel ends with some kind of open endings it's hard to say if that's the route she actually goes or not but like it's it's a place where you see a glimmer that that could be how it ends for her you know
2: yeah it's kind of presented uh that she has two options that she can like help and volunteer with the abortion clinic who seems to be like a group of feminist radicals and I'm saying radicals and air quotes here who are trying to fight this new this legislation that has passed. And there's also a route in which she could go and become the principal of the school and she could use her voice to mentor children even more. And I think the mother part is significant, too. And I don't know if this is just a harmony lens, because like this is kind of what my mom really did in my life, but like she's sacrificing what she wants for the betterment of somebody else. And I think that's really important. She's sitting there and she wants so bad to have this baby, but she knows that guiding Maddie down that path would be bad for Maddie ultimately. And so instead, she's going to sit there and just like be the adult that Maddie needs.
0: Yeah. And I think it's also extra important because even though Maddie is four and a half months pregnant, no one else in her life knows.
2: Yeah.
0: Roe is the only person she confides in about it. Something else. I- Ash and Ash, but like yeah. the only adult, you know, like her parents don't know even though she has a relatively good relationship with them and stuff, which I just think is is worth throwing out there as well. Um something I was interested in because we see we see the abortion scene happen in Rose's perspective, not in Maddie's. Mm. Throughout the entire book, the abortion clinics, right? Like we you hear a little bit about it in that passage you just read. Are painted out as being terrible, awful places where like Shady, sketchy shit happens. Yeah. And I will say, part of me does wonder, I'm sure, right? Like, this is a bit of a dystopian novel, right? So, like, I'm sure that there were places like that. But part of me also wonders if, like, all of that is sort of just like propaganda because of the fact that, like, they so desperately don't want abortions to happen. Because when they actually go, what they find out is that they're dealing with a real doctor who Mm -hmm. worked at Planned Parenthood doing this for over 20 years before Planned Parenthood closed. And that really their biggest struggle isn't lack of expertise or, like, trying to, like, actively put girls in danger. Their biggest struggle is the fact that they're running an illegal operation (laughs) and therefore Mm -hmm. don't have as, as many supplies. And that really struck me during this part is the fact that to a certain extent, all of them have drank this propaganda juice about, like, what it means to get these abortions now even though all of the characters are pro choice and pro like doing what you want with your body it just really struck me that like that brainwashing is very very subtle throughout the book
2: yeah that is important i think and they also um one of the things that struck me about the abortion scene too is that like when they go the the woman that brings them there like it's a very covert operation and yeah, they're uh, blindfolded in a va- in a van it's yeah. so intense and Roe like makes fun of it as though they're like overreacting. And I, I wish I wrote that line down. Maybe I can find it. Cause there's a line that the the woman who's taking them to get the abortion says that's so funny. It's just like so good. And it really puts into perspective that like this is what dystopias look like. Like at the end of the day, we're all we're still all living our individual dramas. Like, yeah, we had COVID going on, President Trump is president. (laughs) Um, We have a million things that feel like crazy and chaotic, but like we could have been in a dystopia all along and we have been, but it just doesn't feel that way because we're all caught up in our individual dramas. Yeah. I found
0: the, I found the line.
2: Can you read it? (laughs) It's
0: on page 314. So. Maddie stares red faced at the ground. I'm I, I'm Elle, let's get into the van. The woman nods at the garage. Van, they say together? We don't do the procedures here at headquarters. We use temporary sites that keep changing, for safety reasons. And I need to ask you to wear masks during the drive. The biographer laughs. Are you serious? Elle drags up the garage's roll door. Yeah, we take the surveillance state and male supremacist legislation pretty seriously. Call us crazy. No, it's fine, says Maddie. (laughs)
2: Yeah, like, that's what's happening. And each of these individual characters don't really recognize that that like they recognize that it's crazy that they don't have Roe versus Wade anymore, but they don't recognize that they're in a surveillance state. And yeah, like, it is a patriarchal male supremacist world that they're living in. Yeah, yeah. That's all. <laughs>
0: it was wild. It was very wild. I feel like we're naturally drifting towards Maddie's story just because they're very closely intertwined. Do you want to talk about the Explorer really fast before we move on to that? Just because they're also sort of the people who make sense together.
2: Yes. So the Explorer, there's a great, actually, this isn't going to be the Explorer's line, but I have 271. Page 271. That's kind of about the explorer. So this is Roe writing about the explorer. Crossed out. Ivar. Okay, I'm going to butcher this name, you guys, but I'm going to read it anyway. And I apologize. The significance of Ivar Minerva Vudotiers. <laughs> keep going. Keep going. <laughs> Research was crossed out. Mir Voodotier was important because... Was she important? Question mark From the Latin to be of consequence, way to carry in, to bring in. She brought in one refusal to submit to cottage life. Two measurement of ice chlorides and Arctic sea temperatures. Three metric analyses of ice response to wind speed and tide speed. Four, a theory of refreezing predictors and sea ice leads, invaluable for navigating ice-choked waters, and thus helped to bring in, one, shipping and trade through the Northeast Passage, once considered impenetrable. Two, more ways for white pirates to steal from the non-white, the not-rich, or the not-human. Three, oil, gas, and mineral drilling in the Arctic. Four, the shrinking of the ice. Minerva Voodarchur. May have felt free, but she was a cog in a land snatching, research sucking, climate fucking imperialist machine. Crossed out. Wasn't she? Crossed out. Was she? I don't know what I am even saying about this person. There is not a single known photograph of or why I couldn't bring myself to ask for. My lips aren't working. It does. Yeah. So like, we said, we touched before that she can't like write about the biography and i think that's part because she's having these two conflicting things right like this is an important person to history that people should know about and we find out during this section that this that the explorer had her research rejected from whatever academy she was submitting it to because she was a woman and eventually she just asks the guy who rejected her to publish it under his name because she thinks that this research is important to the world. And this is a woman that like is a true rebel girl. If we're going by the rebel girls book club definition in that she breaks every stigma of her society and like every social restriction and goes after what she wants. But this was a really important page because it also showcases that like even our heroes have flaws. And I felt that it was important based off of our discussion in last episode about how kind of like white feministy this book is, because it gives us some insight into how, how even when we're making strides, we can oppress others. And yeah, the biographer, yeah, that I just thought I just thought that was important. Like it gives us more context into like the the explorer being a real human and a real problematic human, even though she probably like wasn't thinking about things in the way that we would think about things in a modern lens. Like she still thought she was doing important work, but her important work was wrong. Her.
0: Yeah. Her important work had consequences. Some of which probably she couldn't have seen, right? Like climate change and stuff in the 1800s. I think it's fair to say that like, that's a consequence that's not on her. Right. Yeah. Like there just, there was no way she could have known. But the other things the like, colonialist aspects are stuff that like white people back then knew about knew they were like actively participating in and didn't care about because colonialism and imperialism were sold as the right thing mm-hmm. so like it really i agree with you that this is very much an important passage but i think that this is also one of the passages that has more of a bending on to where rose mind is at as well because i think that a lot of this is also her self-reflecting on like her position in society and what she's like participating or not participating in through her own actions as well. When it comes to like, I don't know. I think, I think it also just comes, I think it all just boils down to the fact that like she, she desperately wants to take Maddie's choice away from her and shouldn't, you know?
2: I agree. But I think that like each of these passages do give us some sort of insight into Ro's own individual story. And I think that like the explorer for Ro is kind of like, uh, what's that word? It's kind of like her um do you know can you read my mind, please? <laughs> uh ultra ego almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She um
0: projects onto her a lot.
2: Yeah, it's who Ro feels like she wants to be. And that's part of why the motherhood thing is so hard for her because the explorer didn't have children. Um, and her story, when her story ends, like it's a sad it's a sad tale. She's off exploring and then she freezes to death.
0: Under ice. Yeah. Under
2: ice, and they don't reclaim her body. Well, they can't,
0: to be fair. It's not like yeah. they just, it's not like they wanted to leave her there. Yeah, her story really picks up in this half because this is the half where the explorer gets everything she wants, right? Like she is widowed. So she's able to break out of that marriage. And through that, she's able to break out of this whole like traditional family life that's ascribed to her, especially because her mother like is mad at her for all of this, um, which is unfair because none of it's her fault. So she lies about her gender, sneaks onto a ship. And then by the time they find out she's a woman, it's too fucking late. And she's really good at her job. And she finds at least through Rose's interpretation of her story finds camaraderie with her fellow sailors and things like that but as was really common with arctic explorers things went wrong they got trapped in the ice and they were there essentially alternatively starving and freezing to death for three years before she felt the need to go out and um, try and meet a ship that was supposed to be bringing them supplies and that's how she dies so it's like very it's climat- it it's climactic and anticlimactic simultaneously because she gets everything she wants and she goes on this grand adventure and she states at least rose states for her multiple times that she has no regrets and like she got what she wanted because this is where she fits in in the world but then also she dies before she's able to see the culmination of any of her work and she doesn't know if her fellow sailors survive what's left of them and stuff and like it's a very hard and sad story for different reasons, I would say, than the than the other woman.
2: Yeah. But I also think like if we're going along the idea that the explorer is in a way Ro's alter ego, like Ro herself only works I mean, she is one female coworker that we hear about and one female friend that we hear about. But for the most part, she's surrounded by men. And I think Her choice to remain single and um, her lack of parenting to her could be interpreted as like she is one of the guys. And so in a way, she is like the explorer making that bold frontier and her biography may never get published, but she does it anyway. And yeah, at the end, like the explorer ends up not getting any sort of recognition for the work that she did. And we see that the work that she did from this passage, like we see that the work that she did had consequences. And I think that the same could be, like, I think that's kind of how Rose sees her own work and her own life and like her own path. All right, not to rush us along, but we're out over an hour, Maddie. so
0: we could probably <laughs> move on to the daughter. Two things happened to Maddie this whole time. The first mm-hmm. is that she's trying to get this fucking abortion, God help her, she's gonna get it. And the second is that we finally find out about what happens with Yasmeen. Where do you want to start? <laughs>
2: I mean, I don't have as much to say about the abortion, but to kind of summarize for people, she gets caught at the border and it's a woman, I think that's significant, who's really hard on her and who wants to jail her for trying to pass over the line. And then a man comes in and Maddie later describes this to Roe as, this guy comes in and at first I thought he was like gonna rape me, but instead he let me go because he has daughters. And then he says something to her about... Let me see. I think it's in the first part of the daughter's tale. He says something to her about like making the good decisions or something. It's some sort of weird thing that sounds reminiscent of what her father says to her. Yeah, he feels
0: weirdly paternal about her, so he lets her go.
2: But he says something weird. That's yeah, he gross. says a lot of
0: weird things to her.
2: Yeah, but it's like it's weird because it reminded me of her father and like her father and her have a good relationship so I want you to learn a lesson from this don't repeat your mistakes like I tell my daughters be the cow they have to buy sorry don't be the free milk
0: yeah yeah honestly I read this passage and and all I could hear was John Mulaney doing his cow joke (laughs) it was all it was all i could hear why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free that's that's the that's the phrase he's playing off of um which is a very gross gross and and sexist statement of course
2: and the fact that he she thinks that he wants to rape her but also like he's like no i feel paternal towards you i'm gonna let you go it's just so weird well, gross. because
0: And because the thing is, is that part of the reason he th- she thinks he's there to sexually assault her is because he comes weirdly close to her and like touches her and, 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 you know, and it's like not necessarily inappropriate in the sense that like, it's not like he goes and like grabs a tit, right? But like, it's inappropriate because she does not know him. And he did not need to be touching her. And like, he's in a position of power in so many ways here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, I think that was also an example of, of something that I've been reading a lot about recently in feminism, about the fact that, like, part of the reason that men don't understand aspects of consent is because they have a hard time separating their intentions for how a, a an interaction is supposed to come off with how it actually comes off. Because, like, this dude talks about feeling paternal towards her, right? And she just feels threatened the entire time. So, like, he's probably coming in here and putting a hand on her shoulder thinking that this will be, like, a comforting paternal thing to do. And instead, it, like, it's freaky and it's threatening and he's not thinking through his shit and, like, it's just so gross.
2: I mean, I think the, I get what you're saying and I get the intentions thing, but I think at the end of the day, the reason why he does it, and I think this is especially exemplified when he's talking about the cow and not being the free milk, is because he feels ownership of her body. I think that's why men touch you in general and they just don't realize that that's like, it's implicit. Sure. But they feel ownership of your body and that's why they think it is okay. Cause men hardly do that to other men. It's just gross. The whole thing is gross. The fact that he feels, and I think that weird uh, dissection, like I think that weird intersection of the sexual context and then like the paternal context is that same sort of like we feel ownership over your body so like he chose not to make it sexual but to them they can only be in this world and also in our world because that's what it's like they can only be father and protector or they can be you know the person that wants to like violate that was weird do you have anything else you want to say about that (laughs)
0: I don't think so. I feel bad because I feel like I'm I'm like downplaying what happens with Jin and Maddie, but it's just like their sections are just way less introspective, you know?
2: Yeah, I get it. The other big thing that struck me throughout Maddie's section is that we finally figure out what happens to Yasmeen. We figure out that she's in jail. Yeah, she's um, alive. Yeah, she's alive and she's in jail and she was made an example of for trying to seek an abortion. And it's weird to Maddie that she would be in jail because her mom is like an Oregon representative. And Yasmin, throughout this book, but in this section, she like, she calls Maddie, she goes ignorant white girl because Maddie just doesn't seem to get why it's important that like Yasmin is brown and why like things can happen to Yasmin that wouldn't happen to Maddie.
0: Yeah, and I think that's extra important because that whole conversation happens in the context of after Yasmin finds out she's pregnant, she's essentially like, I can't be pregnant. My mom is an important person. She's a House of Representative, And I can't give, I can't play into this image, essentially, of what it means to be a Black person, a, a Black, a young Black girl, because that would ruin, like, it, she's worried that it'll, like, ruin her mom's career. And, like, that's a large part of what Maddie just doesn't get. get. Uh, so yeah, this is the daughter sections are really some of the places that you see some of that white feminism get downplayed a little bit here because like you, you see more of Yasmin being like, <laughs> you just don't understand things outside of your own experience. You're not, and you're not even really trying to, I really wish we could have seen more of Yasmin in this story. I think it would have made it a lot more balanced and at least a little bit less white feminist-y because- yeah. Part of the tension is that the reason she's in jail is because this homemade, the home abortion goes badly and she could die. Maddie is legitimately worried that she's going to die. So she's the one who calls the ambulance and the reason that she's found out. And so now Yasmin doesn't talk to her. She doesn't uh, answer her letter. She doesn't, um, she just doesn't communicate with her. And it baffles even Yasmin's mother, um, but so Yasmin is really only uh, like a disembodied fragment of memory here. And I'm I conscious. Yeah. But and I like I understand why that was important for the story. But I feel like it, we could have had more open conversations if she was like in communication with Maddie too.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think it kind of I think this part almost shows a self-awareness of the book as we've seen more throughout the second section of like the fact that it is a white feminist story um and I think maybe there's even like hope for Maddie a little bit because she does has have like Yasmin's disembodied voice telling her when she's being stupid and ignorant but like it doesn't ever we don't ever get to explicitly see Maddie be like Oh, this is why what I'm doing is wrong. And we don't really get to explicitly see that for any of the characters, except for when Ro is reflecting on the biographers or the explorer's life. So yeah, there's a, the, the scene in which we find out about what happened to um, Yasmine. it's like one of the last pages and it's the last thing we get from Maddie, uh, the daughter. Dearest Yasmin, I'm writing this letter from the Math Academy. It's not as amazing as we envisioned, but it's good. I miss you. Always wondering how you are. What kind of school situation do they have there? Do you still want to be, do pre-med? My plan is marine biology. I touched a whale's eye on the beach. Please believe me, Yas. I didn't want to tell anyone. I thought you were going to die, so I called them. That was the only reason. Also, I had a, cross out, procedure. Something happened three months ago. When you get out of Bolt River, can we be friends again? Love, Max. And it's like simultaneously heartbreaking, but also it's like, it just kind of showcases to me this like, dynamic that these two have because Yasmin, it's stated, is a privileged person. Like her mom is a representative and she's the first Black representative, right? So like she has this privilege that Maddie may not necessarily have, but like Maddie still doesn't get why Yasmin's life could be harder. And um, all she knows is that she lost her friend.
0: Yeah, she doesn't think critically about any of that. Um, the old there's places where we see it start to broach, right? Like she's talking about her relationship with her father and how it embarrasses her a lot because her father is mistaken, uh, Yasmin's mother for being like a cleaning woman, essentially, multiple times, right? And it's like she's literally like a house representative, right? And like, so she's got like the 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 inklings of reflection starting, but like, it's difficult because on the one hand, Maddie very much just like writes. As like a sixteen year old, yeah, you know? she's a child. And on the and on the other hand, Yasmin has never had the ability to just be sixteen in that way. And like that's yeah. the whole point. That's the divide that Maddie can't get right. Like, and the thing is, is that I think that she doesn't realize her whole relationship with Yasmin we see is like a lot of Yasmin teaching Maddie about the world. And mm-hmm. on the one hand, like that sometimes what happens with friends is that like one person is more sheltered and one person like teaches the other person things when i was 12 i had to ask a friend why you had to swallow tampons that was quite the conversation i didn't understand how they worked
2: we're gonna get more into that off air but continue Uh, um (laughs) and
0: uh but what she doesn't see is that like the reason yasmin is quote unquote more knowledgeable is because societally she's been pressed to right and societally she's probably been looked at as being a grown-up for a lot longer than Maddie has and like all of this systemic racism stuff essentially that like has influenced their friendship and Maddie just doesn't see it and is only just beginning to acknowledge it and so like of course Yasmin doesn't want to talk to her to be honest like especially because like all of this lines of questioning it's like she's in jail girl you think she really like her her ability to do pre or things like that like I don't want to limit anyone who's had a jail experience right like but legally you are a lot more limited afterwards and people look down on you and stuff and like it's this whole fucked up system and like she just doesn't think when she says things
2: <laughs> yeah and i think it's telling that like maddie gets to go maddie gets to have this operation it's an okay experience she has an adult there for her she gets to go to this math academy and meanwhile yasmine who is like kind of you know she's the first person that we see do this she is the what do i call it not like explorer but maggie can you read my mind she's the she's like the groundbreaker
0: almost you know like she she's doing it for both of them i i don't know what you're trying to say i know i don't know what
2: i'm trying to say either (laughs) you're right she's
0: she's almost she's almost the guinea pig because she's the first person who has to do it uh that Maddie knows intimately right like cuz the other the other examples we have are like almost rumors or like i know a person who know a person who threw themselves down the stairs to try and get rid of a, a pregnancy right like that kind of thing yeah and it's all it's still through Yasmin's mistakes that Maddie makes the decision she makes about how she's going to do it
2: yeah yeah but Yasmin is the guinea pig and then like Yasmin ends up in jail it's just yeah it it's unfair and the book doesn't explicitly address that this is because of race, but I think that we get to see inklings of it if we read critically. And I think that is intentional.
0: Yeah. I think it's at least implied. Like it's, it's there for you to dig for, um, for sure.
2: Yeah. Do we want to talk about Jin?
0: Yeah. So (laughs) Jin spends, you know, most of this half in, in jail or at trial. And then Susan discovers, Susan puts two and two together after her conversation with Brian that Lola is being abused at home and is therefore most likely being coerced into saying all of these things, uh, which means that the lawsuit, like, it, it's just totally invalid, right? So Susan sort of indirectly saved Jin in that way. Uh, and then Jin doesn't go to jail, and it's great. Uh, but there's lots of other things happening there as well.
2: I think that storyline. For me, almost felt a little bit too tidy as someone that has worked with law, you know, like as somebody who has written about law cases. And I wonder too, like, because we're fresh off talking about Yasmin, like if Jen were a black woman statistically, like that that wouldn't have happened. <laughs> even though the town has it out for Jen and thinks that she's a witch. So like if she were othered even just a little bit more and even under this scenario, I found it. I found it like too tidy that the jury came out the way that they did, but the evidence was compelling enough, right? Because Lola recounts everything that she said. And she said, like, I was threatened to do this. I went to Jen because my husband beats me wrapped up in Jen's tale is kind of Principal Fivey, and I wanted to, I wanted to know what you thought about him, because he's the person in power here, you know, he's employing all of our major employed and employed characters, Uh, you know, he's like in charge of Maddie and Roe, and he's Didier's boss too, Um, and he's just such an asshole, and he doesn't like, he comes across as very like good old boy, and that's kind of how Brian comes across too. And Brian, like, also is kind of a dick because he's not doing more to help his cousin Lola. And yeah, I wanted to know what your thoughts were on that.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're. It does feel a little weird though because, like, a lot of the compelling parts about Jin's story here are actually compelling parts about Lola's story. Yeah. Um, I agree that it felt like very tidy, and totally that if Jin were othered even a little bit more, like things probably wouldn't have gone this way. Um, but then at the same time, right, like a confession from the person who is ostensibly doing the lawsuiting is kind of hard to to, Ignore. to argue with. Yeah, so I guess the first thing is that like that. So we see the conversation that happens with Brian in this section that like. Sets all of these things off, essentially. And I was also frustrated with him, right? Especially because he doesn't ever... um, He very much uses the excuse that 5 employs him as a reason to, like, not try and do more to protect his cousin, even though they all know that she's being abused. And also he hides in the, like, safety of the familial herd as well, because he also just doesn't want to deal... Like... He doesn't want to deal with anything individually. So, if everyone in his family isn't going to move forward, then like he's not going to either. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. Fivey is just such a bad person. Like, he just does such unspeakable things to her because it's not even the reason she gets hurt in the first place is because Fivey finds the topical oil that Jin uh, made for Lola to help with this burn that he gave her. And then he tries to poison her with it and like that's how she falls down the stairs and gets really really injured so like there's a case made for attempted fucking murder there like he really is a terrible terrible person um but his power protects him in a lot of ways because the one person who does know all of this time doesn't want to cross him because he's the person in power and also like when you think of school principals in a lot of ways right like for maddie for example right like she's not gonna suspect him of everything because she's 16 and she's not even she like she expects the best from the world as a lot of 16 year olds do right like and roe doesn't like 5e but it's a much more personal thing because he is sort of he's a dick about everything she's trying to do to like deal with her body but she doesn't expect she doesn't suspect anything else of him right outside of like general dickishness and stuff and like he's able to use and leverage that power not not even just the power he has in his household as an abuser but like his place in society to like take extra power almost in his household yeah yeah i think that's my general thoughts on 5e is that like he's a terrible 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 person who took literally as much power as he could in the world really and then just like used it to shit on this poor poor woman who just wanted to date jen <laughs> like that was it jen was like her happy little safe place
1: yeah
2: why do you think he punished jen in that way because Jin wasn't telling anyone do you think like in the text does it say that he knew that lola like wanted to date Jin or or what i think it was implied
0: um but i think it was just like general jealousy and controlling nature right like because the only person she could have gone to to get that treatment was Jin, right which meant that somebody knew his secret which was dangerous in general Um, but I think it's also, I think it was also probably just like a classic abuser control situation, right? Like the person that I'm trying to control did something outside of the purview that I said was okay, so I need to punish her. And now that punishment has gotten so out of hand that I'm gonna get in a lot of trouble if I can't pin it on somebody else. So I have to pin it on Jin for medical malpractice, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That's very tough. Um, I have nothing else to say. I agree with you. I want to touch on the other part of the Mender storyline, um, which is really important, is kind of her conflict of having given Maddie up, but also having this desire to want to help Maddie. And her ending is really compelling because it it ends with her meeting Maddie's uh, adopted mother. Mm-hmm. Um, on page 336 Hello? Jin? A bright voice behind her. The mender stops in the aisle. Canned tomatoes make loud red suns across her vision. It's me! Maddie! She turns and blinks at the girl who is steering a shopping cart and her mother, who has long gray hair, big teeth when she smiles. The mender has watched them together on Lupadia Street. Mom, this is Jin. Jin, this is my mom. Pleased to meet you, says the astonished mother. She holds out her hand, and the mender shakes it. The skin is dry. How do you two... We met at the library, says Maddie Matilda. Oh, the mother's eyes relax a little. Kind brown eyes. She has kept the girl safe and well. Hello, says the mender stiffly. She glances at the girl's midsection, flat in a closed sweater. Her hair, less lustrous. Her skin, no darkening patches. How and where did she take care of it? She managed not to get caught. She went on a different path. She won't be wondering and forgetting, forgetting and wondering again. Or she will wonder, but not the same way the mender did. I'm glad about your verdict, says Maddie Matilda. The green of her irises is not the same green as the mender's. Mine and not mine. What a terrible thing to go through, says the mother. The mender nods. They fired Principal Fivey, says Maddie Matilda. The mender nods. We should be on our way, says the mother. But it was nice to meet you, Miss Percival. Her cart starts rolling. Bye! The girl waves. The mender waves. Soon it will be February 15th, the Roman festival of Lupercalia and the girl's birthday. She and Cotter started the girl. The mender, with her body, continued the girl. For a time, her clock was full of water and blood and a kicking fish, which is both important and not important. He may figure it out himself once he sees her enough times in town, but he may not. Should she tell him? All that Cotter does for her... The bread on her step each week, the nutmeg pie at Christmas, hauling Temple's plastic-wrapped body in his truck bed to the harbor, hoisting the body onto a borrowed boat, maneuvering the boat in darkness out of the slip in the past breakwater, and into open ocean. Without hesitation, he did these things. The girl is continuing herself, has no need of Cotter or of the Mender. <laughs> So I thought that was really important. And then she goes on to say that like if she ever, you know, comes to her again on her own accord, she might, like the mender might try to teach her, might try to set like, might try to pass on the Percival way. But I think the fact that like Maddie is her own being is really empowering. And the fact that the mender recognizes that and recognizes that like she in the way, she in a way is doing the less selfish thing too. She in the way is being a mother. By choosing not to, like, come forth with the fact that she is the biological mother.
0: Yeah, for sure. Because she's recognizing the fact that, like, Maddie is safe and cared for. And, like, you know, she she makes the decision that, like, her adopted mother is doing a good job, right? Like, um, and I think she also recognizes the fact that, like, she left... you know, by making her decision, she left her child with a lot of questions and she has a lot of questions herself as well. Um, But also the fact that, like, that's just part of life, right? Like the part where she says, and Maddie will wonder too, but differently. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, that's just what life is, you know, you make big decisions and sometimes you do look back on them and you wonder, like, well, what if I did do the other thing and stuff like that's just sort of what it means to be a human. But she's still a whole person, even if she has questions, you know?
2: Yeah. And she's, she might have some similarities to the mender, but she's not the menders. Like, even though the mender birthed her, she's because she is her own person, regardless of even if the mender had acted as her mother, she's, she still would be her own person. She doesn't have to be the exact person that the mender is.
0: Exactly. It's like, she said, like, it's important and not important, right? Like, she's just going to be who she is no matter what, no matter who started her, no matter who raised her. Um, Which I mean, to a certain extent isn't entirely true because nurture is also important, but like, I think the sentiment there is, is worthwhile.
2: Yeah. And I think that's important for the mender too, who is so very obsessed with her heritage and um, like whose heritage gives her such power to recognize that like, Even if this person is carrying your blood, they don't have to carry your lifestyle or, like... Legacy. Yeah, they don't have to carry your legacy. And that's, like, that's okay. But if she wanted to carry the legacy, she's going to keep the doors open.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I... I like it because I feel like it offers a place where potentially Maddie and Jen could like become friends you know like it it was to me it felt like their ending simultaneously felt the most hopeful and the most open where like it's a place where like maybe Jen can tell her the truth one day you know and give her the whole story and like answer her questions but not now not while she's still a child not while she's still forming who she is you know she's not gonna I think she recognizes implicitly the fact that by answering some of the questions Maddie has now, she's actually going to just create more questions and more confusion and, like, more issues with her identity, whereas as an adult in the future, it it might be less that way, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it has to be something that Maddie herself is seeking out because the mender did waive her rights. Like she waived the rights to be a mother. So she doesn't get to make that imprint. Exactly.
0: And I, so like she's, she, she's just leaving the door open for Maddie. Right. Like, and it's nice. It's nice. nice.
2: Before we end, we really need to talk because we haven't talked about it at all. Temple's body. What do we make of that? What the, what the fuck is, what the fuck is happening here? Oh, well, I
0: just assumed, so Temple died just, like, at home, but, like, they didn't, they, they, they just, just, you know, Jin just, I don't think, knew what to do with the body, so she just got rid of it. Like, she sent it out to sea to be with her pirate brethren.
2: No, because she also has bits of, like, Temple's body in her fridge and stuff, and also, okay, wait, wait, wait is true. Temple the aunt? Because Yeah. A, okay, so who's the Percival... From, like, the long, long destiny of Percival's. That's not the aunt.
0: I don't know off the top of my head.
2: I thought that was Temple.
0: No, Temple is her aunt who raised her.
2: Okay, and then she has body parts from the aunt or from the old, old uh, Percival? I think from the
0: old, old Percival the witch.
2: Do we want to talk about like the dead body parts? Like, is there some sort of symbolism there? It's weird. Is it not weird? It kind of seems a little serial killer-y and I think that we need to address it on air.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's weird. It's weird. But like, I don't know, man. (laughs) <laughs> she draws i don't know she just she draws such power from like her ancestry and stuff right like these are clearly things that have been passed down for a long time right like i don't think it's implied that like she went out and grave dug recently right like this is stuff that she's received <laughs> from temple that's been like passed down
2: well no having the finger that's a recent addition and that's why all the sailors sailors think that she's like cursed uh cursed the seas all the yeah because somebody random died and she took his finger <laughs> okay okay yeah i guess it's just like a heritage ancestor witchcraft thing um if someone has a better analysis please message us at rebelgirlsbookclub club at gmail.com because i don't know what to make of it and it's just it's just too much for me to analyze
0: yeah yeah it is weird uh we can put that out there officially as a stance that she's got dead body parts and it's weird
2: (laughs) to each their own though uh I just think it could have some sort of significance that I don't know what to do with. Okay, anything? Oh, was this a feminist? Are we done? Yeah, we're done. Was this a feminist book, Maggie? Yes. But a white feminist book. Yes. (laughs) That got better than what I first expected it to be because like they do start acknowledging that in the second half, but still largely uh, not broad enough, I think. Although I still appreciate the story and see its worth. I would like to see um, a little bit more intersectionality. Okay, what else do we ask? Homework. What is my homework this week?
0: I don't know. I don't know what my homework this week is. I'm sorry. I have a migraine. All of a sudden, I'm not. I'm not all here right now. My homework is to go take some migraine medication so that I can. I can uh, come back to the world a better, a better and more well informed person. <laughs>
2: My homework is very similar. Since we are reading this book, I'm going to now that COVID still exists, but in my area is getting like the restrictions are getting less stringent. I'm going to hop back on that train to replace my IUD because I was doing that and then COVID happened. And then I was like, but I need to do that before I turn 26 because then my health care goes away. And Donald Trump doesn't want, you know, he doesn't want health care providers to help me pay for birth control. So This book really puts that into perspective. (laughs) What else? Uh, What are you reading? What am I reading?
0: I don't think I'm reading anything, actually. I finished a book this morning, and now I I haven't had a chance to pick anything up yet. What about you?
2: I'm reading a few different things. So I've been audiobooking the Twilight series, as you probably heard from a A episode. We're doing this all out of order, so sorry about that. Um, But I'm on Eclipse, and we will link donations to the quillette tribe uh there because their depiction is inaccurate in twilight and also like you know stephanie meyer profited off of she profited off of them as a peoples and they did not get those profits so if we're like enjoying twilight let's throw some bucks their way um they live
0: in a too soon oh my god they live in a tsunami zone they want to move to higher land you should help if you can
2: you should yes and then i'm also reading there's a new book out that is short stories by Zora Neale Hurston and it is called please hold uh hitting a straight lick with a crooked stick so that's a book of short stories by Zora Neale Hurston and I'm really enjoying that and then I am also reading a book for the podcast A Great and Terrible Beauty which is a reread for me so it's really young adult month here and the Birch Household.
0: <laughs> okay, is that all folks? That's all folks. We'll come back to you next week. We're talking about The Ghost Bride by Yang Zi Chu. Are
2: we are we actually talking about that? Can we double check? Yeah. Oh no,
0: you're right. It's bite-sized bits.
2: Yeah, I think so. Let me just triple check and make sure. Um yeah, it's bite-sized bits, and we are but talking the next about. next
0: novel that you should be thinking about is the ghost bride
2: yes we will post the link to what we're talking about for bite-sized bits it's a story by pat murphy i believe is her name and we're delving more into like the sci-fi genre i think it's two stories that we're reading mm-hmm. yeah all right that's all folks goodbye bye
1: don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app you can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash rgbc and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel-girls-book-club and clicking read along. You can follow us at rgbcpod on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter, and you can email us at RebelGirlsBookClub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by the gays. See you soon and remember to read rebelliously.